Well, if you would, please open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We are beginning a series today on the book of Hebrews. You know, this morning we sang that song, Fathomless Love, and there's a line in that song that says, I'm gripped and amazed at what you've done. Speaking of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross, and I wonder what you think this morning about those two words as an expression of your posture, my posture and experience with the Lord, gripped and amazed at the love of God expressed at the cross of Christ. Are you gripped and amazed? And if you had, you know, somebody asked you, you know, what's a word or two that you would use to describe your posture with the Lord right now? Would, Would gripped and amazed be those words? You know, for some here today, perhaps you've never been gripped and amazed and you saw those words on the screen and thought, I don't know what that is. For others, perhaps you could say, well, I think at one time in my life, maybe I was gripped and amazed, but I don't, I don't know if I would use those words now. Welcome to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to a church where some were not as gripped and amazed as they once were. Some were becoming spiritually lazy. Some in the church had gotten out of the habit of even gathering together as a church. Some were pondering, seriously pondering, no longer following Jesus Christ. And so the book of the Hebrews lifts up exalts the glory of God in Jesus Christ and seeks to grip us and amaze us afresh at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so if you have your Bible open this morning to Hebrews 1, let's read together. This is God's Word. Hebrews 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together. Ask the Lord's help as we begin. Oh, Heavenly Father, 
I pray, beyond our singing and beyond the receiving of the Lord's Supper and our fellowship, Lord, that you would grip us and amaze us afresh as a church with who Jesus is and what he has done. Lord, that these things would affect us to the the core of our being. That we would delight ourselves in the Lord our God. That we would find in you, Lord, our joy and our contentment. Lord, that we would find in you strength to face the different things in life. Things that change. Things that, Lord, weigh on us. Burdens that were brought in even this morning. Lord, I pray you would help us to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray, Lord, that you would set joy before us. And for the joy that was set before Christ, like him, we would have joy before us and enduring. Lord, I pray you'd have to help us to cast off sin that clings so closely and help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. All of these things, Lord, that we get from Hebrews, Lord, help us, help us to be gripped in amaze today. Lord, I thank you just for the recent relay conference last week or the week before last and many of the young adults who were able to be there. Lord, I pray that something would be lasting well beyond the conference in the lives of our young people. Do an enduring work, Lord. Help them just on a trajectory of living for and desiring after and going after the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for that. I just thank you for the ladies, the many ladies of our church that gathered this morning for the Seeking Him study. Lord, would you continue to help our, the ladies of our church? Because as they get a vision, more of a vision of seeking you, Lord, we all benefit from that. And so we just pray for an enduring work in these ladies. All right, lift up the the luncheon today for the young men's discipleship as we look at angels and demons and Satan and what the Bible teaches. Lord, I pray that you would fortify these men in their faith and in sound doctrine, that they would not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Lord, I pray for the sick. In our, among our church, Lord, we just lift them up to you. We pray for your healing. We pray for your touch. We pray for your sustaining grace. I pray for those that are in need, financial need in our church, Lord, that you would provide. I pray for the discouraged, Lord, that you would draw near and encourage, breathe fresh faith and fresh courage into their hearts. Use us in this way. And Lord, we continue to pray for Alpha. We pray, Lord, that the lost in Jacksonville, the lost that go to our schools and are in our neighborhoods and work at our jobs and are in our families would come to know you. We long for this and I pray for those that Alpha would just be a a great setting. Lord, help us to invite, give us courage and boldness. And Lord, we just continue to give our future to you. As we are at the beginning of another year, December will be here very quickly. We give our future to you. Lord, we give our country, the United States of America. We pray for our president. We pray for the upcoming elections. We pray for our governor. Lord, and these all these folks that lead us, 
Give them wisdom. Give them grace. Help them, Lord, to have your heart and your mind. And we commit this time to you now, Lord, as we study the book of Hebrews, not only today, but in the coming days, may it bear lasting fruit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would not be confused, but we would be encouraged. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are, the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know to whom the book of Hebrews was written. And we don't know when the book of Hebrews was written. Though there are in the passage or in the book indicators to give us some idea We find out from chapters 10 and 13 mainly that the writer knows the recipients and the recipients know this writer. There's details about the church. The writer says he's praying for the church and he thanks them for praying for him. That's chapter 13, verse 18. The writer says that he hopes to visit them again. That's chapter 13, verse 19. And he mentions... In chapter 13, 22, that Timothy was recently released from prison. So the church knows Timothy. Some have wondered if the book of Hebrews is like an unnamed letter of the Apostle Paul. Uh, The Greek vocabulary of Hebrews is very refined. It's very high and polished, sophisticated. It's actually unlike any other book in the New Testament. All the writers kind of have a distinctive vocabulary, sentence structure. It's, Hebrews is unlike any of these books. So very early on in church history, it was unknown who wrote this book. And an early church father named Origen, he expressed it well. He said, who actually wrote the epistle? Only God knows. But it appears that this letter comes at a time when Christians were being more and more persecuted. So estimates is like the mid to late 60s AD. This is around the time that the Apostle Paul was killed. Some in the church had been put into prison for their faith. And others in the church then had a choice. Do we visit our brothers and sisters, our our fellow church folk in prison, or do we hide? Because if we visit them, everybody's going to know we're Christians too. So they had a choice. Well, they chose to go visit them in prison, and it turned out badly. It turned out badly in the sense we read in chapter 10, verse 34, that many of those that went and visited their brothers and sisters in prison had their property plundered, is what it says. So you can imagine like somebody coming in your house unannounced, roughing up your stuff, taking some with them or burning it, plundered property. And as a result of this increased persecution, many in the church were contemplating going back to Judaism. So many of them were of Jewish descent, most of them, and they were contemplating going back to Judaism because Judaism, at that time, was a protected religion. 
And as long as Christianity was seen in the Roman world as a part of Judaism, they were protected as well. Well, in the mid-60s, they lost that protection. And persecution began to ramp up. And so people were considering, is it really good to be a Christian? Is it worth it? And they began to wonder, can't I just follow God? I mean, I love, I've followed God for years. My ancestors followed God. Can't I just follow God minus Jesus? And I think Hebrews is a timely book for us. Because I think it's getting more difficult to be a Christian and to remain a Christian as there is more pushback in the United States. Obviously, we've had people around the world have been experiencing way more pushback than us, and Christians throughout the centuries have. But it could start ramping up. And Hebrews is one of these great books that we get to read and say, well, how did they face that? How were they encouraged? How were they fortified? The writer of the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us something beautiful. He lifts up, he shows us that Jesus is better. That's the title of our series, Jesus is Better. Jesus is better than every other alternative. He's worth following. He's everything we need to face whatever difficulty may be coming our way. And this is how the original recipients were going to be steadied. This is how they were going to be prevented from drifting away from the faith. And this is what God wants to use for our church at this time as well. To fortify us. To show us Jesus is better. He he fortifies us by gripping and amazing our hearts with the glory of Jesus. Now, one of the great dangers that the church saw in that time was persecution. But the great danger that the writer saw was not persecution, it was apostasy. Drifting away from the faith. So apostasy, not not persecution, was their main threat. And it's why when we get to like chapter 2, verse 3... The author is saying, make sure you don't neglect such a great salvation. So the writer, he lifts up Jesus as supreme, Jesus as sufficient, Jesus as all glorious, because if you and I see him, that will fortify us in our weakness. And then the book of Hebrews does something that I would never think to do. And it's very instructive. I've just been marveling at this recently. If I knew of people that were less and less gripped and amazed by Jesus, right? And they're becoming spiritually lazy and they're contemplating going away from the Lord. I would not think, hey, let me unpack for them the Old Testament. I would never think to do that. And yet the book of Hebrews uses so much of the Old Testament. And a lot of this is assuming, well, these are Jewish believers, so this is going to connect with them. But still, he brings up the covenants. He brings up the Sabbath. 
and the sacrifices and the temple and this obscure guy whose name is Melchizedek. Now we just came out of a Genesis series, so that's you know, a little familiar to us. But I told a friend recently that I was getting ready to preach the book of Hebrews, and he goes, oh, isn't that the book that has the guy with the weird name in it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the book. Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews includes him. The book of Hebrews includes 35 quotes from the Old Testament. And I would never think to do this, but why does the author do this? Oh, church, it is powerful. It shows us that Jesus is better It shows us that Jesus fulfills all that the Old Testament foreshadowed. And it shows us that doctrine and even doctrine going all the way back to the Old Testament is immensely practical to help us in our daily lives. We tend to turn to books like Proverbs when we want practical, right? Or James, he's got a lot of practical. Or those sections in the New Testament, it's like, all right, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Okay, practical. Tell me what I have to do and not do. Well, the book of Hebrews lifts up Jesus Christ, shows us what it is to walk by faith in him, come what may. And it's immensely practical. It shows us that Jesus is better In chapter 1, Jesus is better than angels. In chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. In chapters 4 through 7, Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 8, Jesus' covenant is better than the Old Covenant. In chapter 9, Jesus' sacrifice is said to be better than that of bulls and goats. In chapter 9, Jesus' sanctuary is better than the tabernacle or the temple. Chapter 10 says, in Jesus, we we have a better possession than the stuff we find in this world. In chapter 11, it says that in Jesus, we're guaranteed a better country than a country of this world. And in chapter 11, it says that even those who die in faith, he says they're going to be raised again to a better life. So you hear that refrain throughout the book of Hebrews. You hear words like better or more excellent or superior. Jesus is better and so we need the book of Hebrews to give us a healthy dose of the Lord Jesus Christ and to fortify us against spiritual sluggishness or fear of what's to come. Now, we read the first four verses. In the original, they are one sentence in the Greek. And they preview a lot of the themes that we're going to see throughout this book. So, I've summarized this this morning under four headings. First, these verses show us that Jesus is the true and better prophet. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Look at verse 1 again. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So this verse tells us that God is a speaking God. 
He reveals himself, and he, there's kind of two manners in which God revealed himself. Previously, he revealed himself at many times and in many ways by the prophets. And this just summarizes all the ways God revealed himself under the Old Covenant. He spoke with angels. He spoke directly from heaven. He revealed himself in dreams. And there are many prophets and burning bushes. Over the course of thousands of years, God spoke at many times and in many ways. But then, the writer tells us, he spoke by his very own Son. And the implication of that is Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Prophets brought God's Word. Prophets spoke on behalf of God, and they reveal God to people. Jesus is the true and better prophet. What was piecemeal under the Old Testament is now in Jesus complete. What was partial and spread out over millions, you know, thousands of years is now in Jesus full and final. We have everything that we need to know about God because it's been revealed to us by his final spokesman, Jesus. And so we don't need to hope for more revelation. We don't need to chase after things in hopes of hearing from God. We have what God wanted to say. He has spoken and He has spoken to us by His Son. So Jesus is the true and better prophet. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 2 again. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. An heir is a child or someone else that is to receive all of a person's possessions. Jesus is the heir. He's the Son of God. And it says here, He's the heir of all things. God the Father has given Jesus everything that he has. I mean, imagine a father who's dividing up an inheritance, okay? And to one of his sons, he gives him absolutely nothing. And to another son, he gives everything he has. Which of those two do you want to be connected to? Which of those two would you expect to receive from? I mean, plead with the first son all that you want. He's got nothing to give you. Jesus has everything. He's the heir of all things. 100% of what God has belongs to Jesus. And he offers us to be co-heirs with Christ. And so, if you and I have Jesus... Trust in Jesus, follow Jesus. We are united to the one who has all things. He has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All the promises that God has made, he's able to make good on because he's got all things. 
But if you and I abandon Jesus as some of the recipients of Hebrews, this letter we're thinking to do, if we abandon Jesus, what would we have? He has all things. He's the heir of all things. We would have nothing. If we sever ties with Jesus, we have nothing. For God, I'm mean, sorry, for Jesus to be the Son of God means He is the heir of all things. And then verse 2 goes on to say that He's the Son of God through whom the world was created. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, through whom also He created the world. I love how the writer of the Hebrews, I mean, he drops in like big topics, just, just in passing. By the way, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he created you. He created everything. Uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him, Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So men built this building, but Jesus created it. And He created you. And He created all things. And then verse 3 says, He upholds things by the word of His power. Why is it that atoms hold together? Electrons have their charges and hold together. Because of Jesus. He upholds everything. He upholds us. He upholds the righteous. He upholds the wicked. Get this. Jesus upholds Satan by the word of his power. And the moment he stops, Satan's gone. And so the writer's point is, should we abandon the one who created us? Should we turn back from the one who upholds us moment by moment? I mean, who else are you and I going to tap into for all things now in this life and for eternity? Jesus is the Son of God through whom God created everything. And verse 3 says He's the exact representation of the Father. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The language here, it's like a coin being stamped. Exactly. The exact image. We receive God's glory. We receive the radiance, the outshining of God. We receive it in Jesus. Jesus reveals God. He's equal to the Father yet distinct from the Father. You can't come away from John chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 1 and think, oh, all religions lead to God. No, they don't. No, Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Acts 4.12 says that the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So these are, there's many facets of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. He's the heir of all things. He created us. He sustains us. He reveals God to us because He's God. 
And if he's that rich and that powerful and that glorious, well, that makes Jesus better. Better than every alternative. And he's all that we need. You have him. You have everything. First John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He's that central. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you can turn from sin and trust in Him alone today and have life, life eternal. Know the heir of all things. Know the one who created you and sustained you. Have a relationship restored between you and God because Jesus is the sacrifice for your sins. He's that central. So he's the true and better prophet. He's the son of God. These verses go on to tell us that Jesus is the true and better priest. He's the true and better priest. In the Old Testament, priests offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. Our sin makes us dirty, stained, guilty. And verse 3 says, almost in passing, like it says he upholds everything, it says almost in passing, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus made purification for sins, which, you know, even if this is new to you today, almost every song we sang and the Lord's Supper, we're rehearsing, oh yes, he made purification for sins. Our sin is serious. It doesn't just go away. We can't fix it by being good people. Uh, Time doesn't, you know, make it expire. Sin is removed one way and one way alone. Punished by death. And in our case, that's, that's where hell comes in. Eternal death. Punished. It's that serious. And it's why priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Take this lamb for that sin. Take this goat for that sin. Over and over again. Now Jesus didn't just offer sacrifices. He offered himself as the sacrifice on the cross. He died for our sinful nature. He died for each and every sin we have committed, we will commit in the future. For all who trust in Jesus, before we were born, before we even sinned, Jesus had made purification for sins. This is why we don't want to neglect so great a salvation because, church, it's such a great salvation. That's that's what this is all building to. The very sin that makes us dirty and stained and guilty, the very sin that God hates and says must be punished, was punished on another. The sinless Son of God, in my place, condemned He stood. And so the one who is the heir of all things, the one who created us, who upholds us, who reveals God to us perfectly, that one died for us. That one died for us. 
He made purification for sins. Do you realize where that leaves us, church? Purified of sin. Charles Spurgeon, he asks the Christian, he says, Shall I tell you where your sins are? Christ purged them. This he did on Calvary's cross. There effectually, finally, totally, completely, eternally, he purged all his people from their sin by taking it upon himself, bearing all its dreadful consequences, canceling and blotting it out, casting it into the depths of the sea and putting it away forever. After having made purification for sins, Jesus is the true and better priest. And then he did, after he made purification, he did something that priests never did. He sat down. Priests didn't sit down. If you look at all the furniture in the tabernacle and outside, there were no chairs, no camp chairs, no lawn chairs. We never read as part of their job description, yeah, offer all these sacrifices and then sit down. Take a break. No, there were no breaks. They offered continual sacrifices for the people who were continually sinning, and then their shift went off and the next shift came on. Continual, continual, continual sacrifices. More need to be made because more people keep on sinning. And Jesus, as the true and better priest, he offers himself for sin, and then he sits down. It's done. He offers himself, he rose again from the dead, ascended from heaven, and he takes his seat. No more sacrifices. No more lambs. Nobody had to come back on duty. It is finished. Yes, people keep on sinning. But Jesus was the once for all time sacrifice. The priesthood concluded in him. The offering of sacrifices concluded in him. They could have put a for sale sign on the the temple after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's that final. You see... One of the things that the church was thinking was maybe we should go back to Judaism. And he's saying, that's not an option. Offering sacrifices is, done, is through with because the one that the priesthood pointed to and the one that the sacrifices pointed to has come. And he's offered himself. It's full. It's final. It's finished. He sat down. Feel the finality of this. There's no going back to Judaism. You know, in the last number of years, there has been an uptick of Christians, both of Jewish heritage and non-Jewish heritage, wanting to adopt many of the practices of the Old Testament. 
and to say, hey, what did Jesus do? Well, he lived like a Jew. I'm going to live like a Jew. Or what did they say and command in the Old Testament? I'm going to begin doing those. And they talk about it as though, oh, this is great. There's so much fullness and life and all of these things. Hebrews, Galatians, Colossians, and Acts 15 raise a chorus against that being helpful or fullness. They say, no, actually, fullness is in Jesus. There's no going back. Jesus is better. You see, we don't go back to the shadow once the substance has come. Let's say some of you know this where, you know, a family member goes out of town. And you decide, hey, we're going to have a phone call. We're going to do FaceTime with dad while he's out of town. Well, when dad comes back in town, it would be an insult to be like, hey, dad, go in the other room. We're going to do FaceTime. I, I prefer that over your face. I prefer FaceTime. I prefer being able to hold it or I don't know. That's an insult. There's no going back. That thing served a purpose for a time. What we have in Jesus is full, is final, it's better. Jesus is the true and better priest. He has made purification for sins, and he sat down. And then verse 3 tells us that he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so that shifts from being the true and better priest for Jesus being now the true and better king. The true and better king. To be at the right hand of the majesty isn't like shotgun in a car. This is the, he, he is sitting in a place of ruling power as king and sovereign. Jesus fulfills, if you, if you look at this, Jesus fulfills the roles of prophet and priest and king that the Old Testament had those roles. They all point to Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he ascended, and now he sits and reigns as king over everything. So you, you might think that we owe Jesus something because he created us, like you owe your mom something, Right? You might say, you know, he created me. I probably should give him his due. But he not only created everything, he not only upholds everything, he's king. He rules everything. We live in his dominion. We were created in his dominion. We will never escape the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and that obligation to him. He's king. And so with these four roles in Hebrews 1, prophet, son, priest, king, no one can say, yeah, Jesus is irrelevant. Or we can, do, we can do a lot without Jesus. No, you can't. He's the most relevant person who ever was. You can't hear from God without Jesus. You can't relate rightly with God without Jesus. You can't know and have him reign over you without Jesus, no matter how submissive you say you are to God. You know, many of you know that Islam teaches that Jesus was, one, was a prophet, but that he was uh, superseded by Muhammad. That someone came after Jesus and better represented the fullness of God. Well, the opening words here in this book say that's impossible. Jesus is the true and better prophet. He's the one who reveals God to us. 
Fully God, fully man, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the true and better priest, and he's the true and better king. For our series on the book of Hebrews, uh, I want to recommend a book that will, I hope, enrich your study, our study. I know some of you ladies just entered a book study, so please don't hear this book recommendation uh, if that overwhelms you. Uh, But it's a book by Michael Kruger entitled Hebrews for You. And you can pick up a copy in the lobby. It's $10. But here's something Kruger writes about Jesus as king. He says, if you realize that the king of the universe died for you and gave himself for you and laid aside everything for you, you're left thinking, what king is this? Kings don't save their enemies, they destroy them. Yet here is the Lord who has given himself in order to purify us from our sins. Grace Covenant Church, this, both today, but as we go through the book of Hebrews, it has the ability to grip and amaze us afresh at who Jesus is and what he has done. He's that kind of king, not the kind that destroys all of his enemies, but saves, mercifully and graciously saves us by laying down his life for us. So may we consider Jesus. May we consider who he is, what he did. May we consider this great salvation and not neglect it, not grow familiar with it, not take steps away from it. If I can invite the worship team to return. There is nothing that we could want in a relationship with God that is not provided for us in Jesus. There is nothing that we need to live life on this planet that's not provided for us in Jesus. There's no difficulty we can encounter for which Jesus is not wholly sufficient to meet us in that difficulty. And if you found yourself talking to a person wondering, is Christianity really worth it? Well, the, we, we could take up the words of the book of Hebrews and show them, yes, Jesus is better. Like the writer, we can exalt Jesus in people's eyes and encourage them You know, chapter 12, verse 2 says for us to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run this race. What might you tell a person who's becoming spiritually lazy and who is not wanting to gather with other believers anymore? Well, the book, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells them Jesus is better. He both encourages them to consider Jesus and he warns them. And there's a lot of warnings in the book of Hebrews. He warns them against abandoning Jesus. So church, let us behold the great prophet, the Son of God, our priest, our King, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us behold Him together. Let me pray. Oh Lord, thank You for knowing what we need and in the ways that we need it most. And 
I pray, Lord, that you would use this series as a whole and this message this morning to encourage us, especially if there are any here this morning, Lord, that are growing sluggish spiritually or have encountered difficulties where we wonder if, we're, if it's worth it to keep following. Lord, I pray you would use your word to fortify us and to fix our gaze. Help us, Lord, to cast off the things that cling so closely and run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, because he's better. We praise you, and it's in his name we ask. Amen.